Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk. It is the first podcast of 2020 for, well, Digital Shadows, that is. We've got um, a great array of subjects to kind of discuss on today's uh, podcast. And joining me, we have Adam Cook, yours truly. Welcome back. Hello. Yes. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Did you have a great, a nice break? I did. Thank you. Yes. Very it was nice. very relaxing. Thank you. Nice. Well, yeah, to kind of get things started, we've got a very big subject to dive into and that is around the Iran threat. So on the 3rd of January 2020, US President Donald Trump ordered a strike to terminate a top Iranian commander, General Qasem Soleimani. So following this outcome, Iran iterated that it would retaliate. And while there are many angles to these events, be that military, political or moral, we're going to kind of look at it from the cyber related um, angle. So Joining me to discuss the subject, we have Adam, who you are familiar with, but we also have Sammy, who has regional insight. So, yes, thank you both for joining me. Um, I guess I've touched on it lightly, but what do we kind of know about the situation so far? So this is the latest chapter in ongoing tensions between the US and Iran, much of which has made the news over the last kind of 12 to 24 months. And this is certainly a heightening of the situation. And as expected, something that you touched on there, Iran's initial response has been military focused. Missiles were fired at Iraqi air bases that housed US troops. Uh, and that was as their initial response, although uh, no US troops were harmed, I don't think. Yeah. So we, yeah, we know that there has been some tension um, for 12 to 24 months. But I guess this is also worth considering the tension that has kind of existed throughout history. So, yeah, Sammy, I was wondering if you could kind of touch on some areas here. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, I mean, the region's been on edge for decades. Um, it started with the original schism of, of Islam uh, back uh, hundreds of years ago, pitting Shias and Sunnis against each other. But there have also been more recent developments that have been the manifestation of this stress. Things like the Iraq-Iran war, the Syrian civil war, the Yemeni conflict, all of these have pitted the Shia and Sunni powers against each other in the region, heightening tensions. Historically, Iran was hemmed in uh, by its Sunni neighbors, including the Taliban in Afghanistan and Saddam's Iraq. But ever since 2003 and 2004, with those forces no longer uh, in the way, Iran thought to spread its influence throughout the region. So you, you can see this in, in a Shiite-run Iraq now, unimaginable a few years ago, uh, support for the Alawite offshoot leadership in Syria and Bashar al-Assad, uh, the Houthi groups in Yemen, uh, and the Lebanese Hezbollah. So all of that axis has, has been under the influence of Iran for at least a decade now. Um, this has upset the regional balance in, in the region and, and uh, with America's traditional allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, calling for America's, I'd say, interference or uh, reigning in of, uh, of Iran in the, in the region. Uh, and those two blocks have often based off in uh, proxy conflicts uh, in the region. Great. And so, yeah, we, we I guess the most recent event, um, Iran had mentioned that they were going to retaliate. Um, that was uh, shown through a military exercise or a military strike. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, um, another way to think about this is how likely is it that there's going to be a cyber response to this? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's likely, but I think it's important to caveat that as well you know Iranian offensive cyber operations towards the US aren't anything new ever since the US's withdrawal from the JCPOA or which is better known as the Iran nuclear deal in May of 2018 
Iranian state-associated cyber attacks have been more directed towards the US and its allies. So it's not like now that this has happened, suddenly we're going to see an uptick or we're going to see you know them directing attacks towards the US. Certainly in the build-up uh, to the assassination, there have been multiple espionage campaigns attributed to Iranian APTs, so Iranian Advanced Persistent Threat Groups. So I don't think there's going to be a significant change as a result of the killing of Soleimani. Uh, cyber attacks or, you know, and or espionage remains one option for Iran and state-backed operations take time and resources to plan and both execute. So it's likely that these will emerge through reporting in the mid to long term future if that report, you know, that reporting emerges at all considering the covert nature of these operations. And, and if I can add just something here, um, 2020 is a campaigning year. My expectation as well that there'll be some cyber attacks against companies, uh, VIPs and high net worth individuals, organizations or that are involved or linked to Trump, especially in his bid to, for re-election. Uh, sponsors, maybe donors, even maybe the Republican Party, like we saw with the DNC hack a few years ago in the last election. Um, and also I saw a couple of statements that were repeated from the Iranian leadership relation to this event is that their specific issue is with Trump himself, not the people, not the American people. Um, maybe one thing that we'll see after this that we hadn't seen before is the targeting of Trump-affiliated businesses like the hotels and the towers and the real estate entities, any partners or uh, sponsors affiliated or suppliers even affiliated with, with those organizations. Okay, and then in terms of um, Iran's threat profile, um, how is this event going to change its threat prof profile? Uh... That's tricky. I mean, behind the big four, so uh, China, Russia, the UK and the US, Iranian APTs are probably next in line in terms of capability and persistence. You know, off, they've been often highly active in the Middle East. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, since the tensions between the US and Iran have increased, they have been more focused towards the states and their allies. So there's a number of established groups who have displayed a propensity for targeting government, military and defense, telecommunications, technology, financial services, all sorts of different sectors. And typically tactics include sophisticated reconnaissance efforts, spearfishing tactics and the use of custom built malware to infect their targets. So I'm not necessarily sure we can say now that there's going to be a major shift seeing as these groups, Iranian state-associated groups, have continued to behave in a similar fashion throughout the last two years. I mean, if you wanted to talk about shifts in changes for specific groups, there was the leak of uh, the Iranian state-associated oil rigs groups, tactics and tools. They had a big leak of their tool set. I think that was in April last year. That's something that you could probably link to a change of... Um, a shifting in TTPs or a shifting in tactics because they're forced into it. Whereas, you know, the activity or the behavior that we've seen, even, you know, as the tensions between the US and Iran have increased, haven't particularly altered from your typical espionage, disinformation campaigns, etc. And in terms of like practical advice then, so um, if you're an organization uh, that trades anywhere in the world, what sort of practical advice could we give um, in the midst of this event? Uh, yeah, we've got, a, we've got a bunch of content uh, on this already published around the event. I think this week we've had three or four blogs out. There's a podcast specifically 
dedicated to the topic. And I think we have a, a one blog in particular by our security engineering team that maps uh, to the Australian Security Directorate, I think, the kind of the TTPs that the such groups would use and the best practices for, you know, protecting against them. High-level advice is obviously to understand the threat, so brushing up on the groups, their tactics, their tools, and the techniques that they use, but also just reviewing and tightening security procedures that should really already be in place for the most part for most organisations. I suppose if you are within the sectors that, that we've been talking about, you know, US government, manufacturing, military and defence, telcos, technology, etc., then it would be a good time to maybe red team your security posture and, you know, just make sure everything's in working order. Uh, absolutely. Can I just add one more thing? Yeah, go for I, it, I please. just thought of this. So those sectors that Adam mentioned were exactly what, what we prioritise as priority target sectors for Iran, but also if we, we advise our clients to look at it from another angle and say... Maybe you're not in those sectors, but what if you use suppliers or partners that are in those sectors? You need to also start looking at your third-party risk as well here. Absolutely. That's, that's a really good point, actually. We did a podcast not long ago on, uh, I think, an Iranian APT link that we're targeting uh, IT suppliers in the Middle East. So, yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. Thank you both for uh, discussing that subject with me. If you're interested in learning more about it, please visit resources.digitalshadows.com. We have blogs and we also have a dedicated podcast to the subject. So I re definitely recommend reading it and listening to it if you want to learn a bit more. Then next, we're going to kind of uh, dive into the next subject, which involves um, uh, ransomware affecting the Travelex. So Travelex is the foreign exchange company and it is reportedly suffering from a ransomware attack. So such an attack has actually halted the company's ability to transact even shutting down its computer systems. Those systems have actually been down since New Year's Eve. And actually, I've just looked at their website, and the website is still reporting an issue. So they have a banner up that is basically displaying that you um, they, they are suffering from a uh, software virus. The issue is still uh, affecting TravelX, and uh, this is obviously impacting its customers. There's also updates around the fact that it's supply chain, so banks are also impacted by this. So, um, yeah, it's quite an um, interesting subject, I guess. But, yeah, Adam, I thought we could touch on specifically maybe the hackers that are responsible for this ransomware attack. Let's do that, yeah. So I think initially it was unclear as to who was responsible. I think it's still difficult to assess with absolute certainty, at, at the time but it seems that you know when this first happened travelex were keeping quiet with as much of the detail around the incident as possible no technical details around the tools or what exactly had been breached were released but i think since then from some of the reporting that we've been keeping track of some researchers are attributing the sodinokibi ransomware which was hailed as you know conducting some pretty high profile attacks towards the uh, latter part of 2019 uh, when the authors of the Gandcrab ransomware retired the tool um, quite high profile retiring of what was a widely used and quite costly piece of ransomware but certainly for organizations in the financial services sector throughout 2019 Sodinokibi was thought to be its replacement I think there's a lot of reporting that 
ties uh, the authors to, or the same author to both to both tools. Again, you know, it's not uh, it's not for certain, but it wouldn't surprise me if you know this was a tool like this was responsible. This aligns with some of the trends that we were talking about on the podcast towards the towards the end of last year, in that sophisticated ransomware tools and products are being made more widely available through the growing ransomware as a service market. So it wouldn't surprise me if Sodinokibi was at the heart of this. They are popular tools that are very effective at what they do, which is encrypting and therefore crippling. Certainly organizations in the financial services sector, because of the wealth of sensitive data that they are privy to. So if it does turn out that Sodinokibi is at the heart of this attack, then you know it wouldn't be all that surprising, I don't think. Yeah, and I guess when we're talking, so they we know that they've taken down the website, mm-hmm. um, but is there anything else that's been affected at this point? So any customer data? Again, TravelX said uh, in the initial reports that no customer data had been breached, but I think at the time this might have changed since. I think they were quoted saying that no customer data had been breached yet. So, you know, take from that what you will, but the investigation obviously is ongoing. And you would expect the next kind of official statement from TravelX would hopefully confirm, certainly if you're a TravelX customer, uh, would hopefully confirm whether that had happened or not. Knowing if it is Sodinokibi and knowing the effectiveness of that tool, again, wouldn't be surprised if customer data had been impacted. Yeah, It does seem though like, you know, it seems like they were, I don't know when they realized that they were infected. A lot of companies will realize they're infected and then, you know, not go public straight away so you know you have to take take certain things with a pinch of salt depending on what sources and where you're reading them um but like i said it it wouldn't surprise me if customer data had been at least threatened or or not already impacted hence why they cut off some of their customer facing systems yeah i think another thing to take into consideration here is you know, it's when the company identifies that ransomware has hit the business, but it's also at what point do they identify that there was a vulnerability or some a weakness within the business that allowed mm-hmm. it to get in. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to identify two two things there. So hopefully the latter one I just mentioned gets identified before the ransomware hits. You'd hope but so, in yeah. this case, um, it would be very interesting to understand um the details around their security systems and how that um, that had occurred. But yeah, I guess those details will we won't know. We don't often get those insights, do we? Unfortunately, yeah, I think mainly for uh, saving face on their part. But yeah, it would it would certainly be an interesting one. I think for the most part, when you do find that it's to do with the vulnerability. Um, yeah, it's not often disclosed publicly because like we have been talking about for a little while now, this is something that organizations need to be on top of in uh, in today's world. Of course, yeah. So we, I guess the next step, you know, what, how do TravelX recover from this? And, you know, this is definitely becoming a recurring theme on this podcast. Uh, What's next for TravelX? Yeah, learn from it mainly. Uh, but like you say, this is just another example. I think if we wanted to, we could probably talk about organizations being hit by ransomware every week. Mm. Obviously, we don't to freshen it up. But if we wanted to, we could 
you know, discuss a story about an organization being crippled by ransomware if we wanted to. So, you know, it's an, again, another example of an organization suffering what will likely be a hefty cost at the hands of ransomware. Without all the technical details yet, it's hard to assess next steps. But like I said, another case of financially motivated ransom campaigns. We've seen, you know, a broadening of ransom campaigns themselves in that uh, some towards the back of last year, we had some cases where ransomware is being used for extortion as well. So threatening to distribute the files that have um, been encrypted in the attack. I think the yearly estimates of the costs of ransomware attacks appear to be increasing one after the other. And there's certainly no indication that this is going to change. You know, we've only just started a new decade and we're we're already talking about this stuff. So, Okay. So moving on, we now, is that all right? Is that, yeah. That's all I have, yeah. So moving on, we then have another story related to the Xiaomi major camera data exposure. Did did I say that right? I would have said Xiaomi, but that was technically, yeah, what you did. Okay, well, um, so yeah, we have a event involving uh, camera users who were able to view uh, still images from another user's homes when trying Mm. to stream content. So this is quite an alarming story, isn't it? Yeah, not again, you know, like we're saying with the ransomware stuff, not surprising i think it was a few years back when smart devices used to be so like they were quite new to the market or like you know not um as widely used on a consumer basis but i like to follow these stories fairly closely uh you know this is uh, the smart device smart devices are something that I'm, i'm quite interested in certainly the their wider more prolific use but this one was actually new to me. I hadn't heard of this story until until you sent me the agenda for today, which kind of highlights the frequency with which smart devices are actually hitting the news due to security flaws. So yeah, it looks like Google has shut down access to its Google Nest Hub for these Xiaomi cameras due to reports, like you say, of users receiving still images of other people's homes when they're trying to stream the camera's content to feed into their Google device. I actually watched the video of it happening. There's a there's a thread on Reddit. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's not good. It's not great. It's yeah, it's it's just a bit scary, isn't it? You don't want to be receiving those images. You don't want to be on the yeah. receiving end. And you know, this this ties really nicely into discussion that we've been having uh, within the intelligence department here at Digital Shadows this week regarding security concerns with smart devices so it's the consumer electronics show in las vegas this week first uh week back from the holidays in january every year and each year more and more of these smart consumer products are on display at the show what you usually see is the standard array of like the latest noise cancelling headphones smart uh tablets and laptops you know, some of them look like they are literally like a, a small like mirror nowadays that you can write on and link to link to all your products and stuff. There's also a huge amount of um, like the latest and greatest in televisions. Samsung have got a, a television on display at the CES convention this week, which is 292 inches wide. They, they call it the wall. And and what's that use case specifically? <laughs> I, just, I just find it fascinating, like... You know, it's just amazing the extent to which we're yeah. pushing the boundaries in those kind of consumer products. Yeah. I think the 
8K display. It's all about like 8K now and all this like OLED and HD and all that kind of stuff. But 8K is the latest one. And Samsung are doing a 150-inch TV at 8K that's on display at CES this week. Anyway, I digress. There's lots of weird and wacky stuff as well. Um, there's uh, the, the coolest one that I saw is like a, um, it's a microwave, but it works the opposite way. So it chills products. It's like a, it's like a express wine chiller. Okay. Anyway, there's all this stuff, but the, the, the point I'm trying to get out here is that there's also going to be a dedicated smart city section at the convention, which allows for stands, talks, seminars, and displays for products that, and technology that are required to build smart cities. So this is thing like this is stuff like the Internet of Things, 5G, artificial intelligence, and, and big data initiatives, etc., And it seems that smart city development is becoming more of a reality or it's getting closer. I think we are still a little bit of a long way off. But, you know, you have um, leaders like Singapore who have the Smart Nation initiative that are already in place. I think that's to get somewhere close to it by 2025. And uh, I was listening to some of the uh, some of the content that was coming out about from CES this week and they're estimating that spending on development of smart cities is going to reach 34 billion globally in 2020 which i think is fairly significant and the thing that really interests me about this is the continuous security issues that we regularly reported on throughout 2019 uh you know some of the most recent examples that i can think about are like vulnerabilities in smartwatches that are exposing location data of children in China, the hacking of Ring security cameras, you know, the yeah. Ring doorbell company. Yeah. So an individual hacked one of uh, these, they do cameras for inside as well, hacked one of the uh, the cameras in somebody's home and began speaking to their eight-year-old child through the camera and the speaker system, which is, you know, scary enough in itself. And these incidents are ubiquitous, right? We, we talk about them all the time. It's the same with the Xiaomi cameras. And it's certainly something to give thought to, I feel. You know, although the smart technology that is required to develop a smart city will be far larger in scale and sophistication, it's the fundamentals of security that continue to fall by the wayside in IoT technology yeah. and their product development. So one of the things I'm always that always stands out to me when we're reading this stuff is the the commentary from security professionals that continues to warn of the inherently insecure nature of IoT technology. And there still seems to be a rush to market for the majority of smart products without due consideration to security frameworks. So it was something I was quite keen to uh, look at last year when we had, when the CS convention was going on, because there was all sorts of like smart parasols and food scales and all that kind of stuff. But it's going to be really interesting to see how that builds up into how we want to go and ahead and use this kind of technology in digital infrastructure that's going to you know affect our lives going forward. So yeah, Adam, obviously you have a lot of passion around the subject, but <laughs> no, it's it's lovely. Yeah. But I guess if you so we have this convention and we also have these products which have vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. In there. Do we expect, you know, as we continue to build more products and our lives become a bit more, I guess, smarter, mm-hmm. do we expect issues like this in the case of... Smarter in quotation marks. Yeah. <laughs> do we expect uh, more cases to arise? I think, uh, like this, I yeah, uh, almost certainly. Like these, these stories that you hear, the Xiaomi cameras, the smartwatches, the Ring doorbell 
security cameras they're you know they're almost of kind of bi-weekly weekly occurrence now so i think that going forward the security framework that we're maybe ignoring on the rush to market mm. angle is going to become all the more important and even though you know a vulnerability in a xiaomi camera isn't the same as you know the iot endpoints in digital infrastructure for i don't know a city's transport network it's the foundational layer right these are the these are the building blocks that we're that we're yeah. playing with now and that we're pushing to market now so it's interesting i think there's all you know i, I wouldn't be surprised if there was another story by the end of the week yeah, of or course. by the end of next week yeah well yeah as with lots of products you know um customers really well appreciate privacy it's very core to them so it needs to be if you know if that is what we need in a product then the the product managers need to be building it in and considering it as part of product development so um yeah it's a shame that it's not being put at the forefront of the agenda it's funny isn't it we all want uh we all want our watch and our phone and our car and our house and our google nest will speak to each other but we don't want any of that information to be exposed or you know leaked etc but yeah it just seems to keep on happening so it's that fine balance isn't it of course so um we also have um some updates uh, which relate to the cyber criminal landscape and that is around a threat actor known as um, bc.monster and they were seen to be offering office 365 administrator account access to companies specializing in providing software for legal and business intelligence firms so yeah adam maybe we could touch a bit on sure thing yeah so uh researchers here at digital shadows found that on the 28th of december 2019 bc monster initiated a thread with the spam within the spam section on the high profile russian language cyber criminal forum exploit and they were advertising administrator account access for the office 365 suite belonging to an unnamed technical company which specializes in legal and marketing business intelligence software it's a big mouthful that uh, and at the time of the reporting the access appears to have been advertised for around eight hundred dollars didn't have any further details relating to the type of data accessible to the buyer um but you know relatively interesting in terms of the specificities of mm. this advert yeah highly um, targeted yeah. absolutely yeah yeah, so although there was no further details relating to the type of data accessible through this advertisement to the buyer, it's really great to see how some of the research that we're doing here at Digital Shadows is not only helping inform our clients of their digital footprint, but is, you know, supplementing our wider listener our wider listeners' knowledge of the kind of products or advertisements sales pitches that are being made on these underground cyber criminal forums yeah i think that is rounds up everything that we wanted to cover in the first podcast of 2020 first of the decade first of the decade what an honor so yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yes thank you very much for listening and we hope you have a lovely week thanks victoria bye